Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For For Chemist Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage moving and... Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Dender and shortly, and of course, our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. Now, every week on Box to Box, we try to cover the big and important stories in football, but everyone who loves the game loves the romance of a great underdog story. A rags to riches, backs to the wall, come back from the brink, and when it involves an Aussie white knight saving and rebuilding a team in the heartland of the home of football, that has all the ingredients of a Hollywood movie, it ticks all the boxes. And that is the story of Clem Mofuni, who made his millions out of a plumbing business and is now the saviour of Swindon Town, who are on the brink of a trip to Wembley for a League Two playoff. As Keep-Ups Tom Smithies wrote, Swindon Town were a debacle when Clem Mofuni took over last July. Now they're tantalisingly close to a playoff final. We'll talk to Tom about the journey Mofuni has taken the Robins on, not only as a team, but as a business off the park, paying back debt, buying their home ground and setting the club up for a future as a model for so many other debt-ridden clubs in the pyramid. Willem after that with the latest on the Matildas and Socceroos around the club scene. Then when the passing of football super agent Mina Raiola was reported earlier this week at the age of just 54 after a long illness, it signalled the end of an era for a self-styled agent who was loved by his players and hated by the clubs, but was unapologetic all the way. There's been plenty written and even more said about the agent whose family emigrated from Italy to the Netherlands when he was 11, who brokered his first deal in his family's pizzeria and went on to become one of the most influential people in football over the past three decades. We'll reflect on his legacy with founder of Republic Sports Management and President of the Professional Football Agents Association, Paddy Dominguez. And of course, we'll wrap it up with stoppage time with Derek with a deep dive into the incredible week of Champions League football we've just watched. A look at the final round of the championship and whatever else we've got time to get our heads around. Uh, Michael, we're all over uh, Australia. You're in Sydney, we're in Melbourne. Um, What a week, what a game it was at the Bernabeu. Hello, Rob. Hello to our listeners all around Australia and uh, wherever you are in the most magic place in the universe, the planet Earth. No reflections on the meaning of life this week. Thanks, Rob. Um, <laughs> all I can say is in, in just in this craziness that happened uh, in the Champions League this week, um, it sort of has gone under the radar that Jurgen Klopp was signed an extension to his contract that's going to keep him with the Reds until 2026. And But I just got a question for you off the back of what happened with Real Madrid getting over the top of Manchester City. Is Jurgen Klopp as good as Carlo Ancelotti, who, after Real Madrid's uh, domestic title, has now led teams in all um, teams in all five of the big European leagues to titles? That's some effort from Ancelotti. Um, uh, what do you reckon, Rob? Jurgen I, no, or no, Carlo? No, no, I think um, on, on the exposed form, um, you, you give it to Carlo right now, but uh, um, Jurgen's got a... Um, a way to go in his career. I think if you ask me that question at the end of this Premier League season, um, I'll be in a yeah, better might, position might to be answer. Different answer that. That's right. yeah. yeah, but I mean that's a look. Just uh, Willem will give us all the details in just a moment. But just a, um, a really wonderful um, uh, congratulations sent to all the Real Madrid uh, fans. That, that club, uh, it's got a few problems. To Carlo Ancelotti, who's got them organised, and to the great man, Karim Benzema, who's just uh, 
leading from the front, isn't he? And, uh, I mean, it's just set up the most monumental of games. And let's hear all about it now from Willem van der Neren. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Rob. Yeah, Rob, we were speaking off air, weren't we, about Real Madrid, the fact that they've won this uh, this tournament, the Champions League, so many times. It's in the DNA. And in the final 10 minutes, they looked very much like the side, despite they were f- the fact that they'd been down uh, by by many goals for the majority of the two-legged tie, that they were the side with, with nothing to lose. It just looked like they weren't fussed mm. if they were to go down. Uh, Manchester City, we know what was riding on it for them, and they looked uh, they looked like they had a lot to lose, and that was how it played out. And once uh, Rodrigo put those couple of goals in to level it up, there was only really going to be one side for mine that was going to go on from there. Madrid, they have a a remarkable sort of irreverence about the way uh, that they go about those big moments. Oh, they sure do. And listening to the post-match on the radio, the the fans that uh, that were calling in and, uh, and, you know, wallowing in their misery, they, they said what we all saw, and that was that Real Madrid looked like they were in it till the very end and they were never going to give up. But when the uh, the two goals went in and, and there was the match was still very much alive. You had uh, um, a stoppage time to go. There was plenty of time to come back. But uh, but uh, even uh, within Raheem Sterling coming off the bench and uh, and all the firepower that they had on the park that um, that Pep Guardiola's uh, guys um, you know he couldn't get a tune out of them at the, at the end. They just seemed to have been shell shocked and uh, uh, it was the opposite to to, to Real. And just rounding out on Ancelotti, we saw him during the week as uh, Real won the Liga, smoking the cigar with the sunglasses on with a few of his young players looking like an absolute king. That is the Grand Slam, if you like. So AC Milan, he won uh, the uh, the Italian League title in 2003-04, Chelsea in 2009-10, PSG 2012-13, Bayern 2016-17, and now Real 2021-2022. So it's been a, a remarkable career, quite malleable across uh, whatever squad and whatever play style, whatever league is required. So well done to him. Uh, and he is going to become the first man, the only man, to lead a side in five Champions League finals. Sir Alex Ferguson, Marcello Lippi and Jurgen Klopp are all on four. Klopp's fourth, uh, of course, to come against that man, Ancelotti. Let's have a look domestically, though, guys, because it's been uh, a thrilling week in the A-League, really, and we have a premiership race after all. Wednesday saw Western United and Melbourne City drop points, leaving three sides in the hunt with a game to play. City's fate does remain in their own hands and they can still win it should they beat Wellington on Monday. But Michael, Melbourne Victory and Western United have a chance to make sure they have to work for it. Victory are away to Sydney on Saturday and Western United away to Adelaide on Sunday. So a title race after all. Yes, and I can't help feel for Melbourne City who played, I don't know, six matches in 16 days or whatever it was uh, in their Asian Champion League's group and then just, you know, to miss out getting through to the round of 16 by uh, one goal after not losing any matches in your group phase and then have to fly all the way to Perth, get off the plane, 24 hours play later, and then uh, cop a 2-0 uh, beating at Perth by the bottom team. Um, yeah, I, I mean, Patrick Kazorbo after the match was all, look, you know, we'll, we'll just refocus on Monday night's game. It's a big game and, you know, uh, this is the world of modern football. But he'd have to be feeling a little bit hard done by, wouldn't he, Willem? Oh, he'd be feeling a little bit... Uh, I'm not sure he'd be feeling hard done by. They're going to be without Curtis Good uh, for that one, Michael. So the state of play heading into the final uh, three matches is City lead on 46 points, Victory a second on 45 with a goal difference of plus 14, and Western United are third, also on 45 points uh, with a goal difference of 11. Rob, what about the delicious narrative from a Melbourne Victory perspective of City getting knocked out of the Asian Champions League by one of their old boys, Raul Buena, who had a, a season with the Victory a couple of seasons back, maybe 
last season. Uh, playing now for Kitchi. City were relying on Japan's Vissel Kobe to, uh, to beat Kitchi SC only for Baena to score the leveller in the 91st. Yeah, they'd love that. Um, there's nothing like seeing your <laughs> cross-town rivals get beaten at the best of times and uh, and then to uh, see them have to come home after after what they went through and uh, and get their butts kicked in, in Perth as well um, uh, um, and, and finish with 10 men <laughs> would have uh, just been a um, delight for, for uh, Tony Popovich's guys to watch. So, um, look, they'll probably still win the title because uh, we um, saw Western United slip up and, and a few things would have to go uh, against them. But whether they win the double this year, uh, it's that's the, the, the real uh, discussion point, isn't it? Um, last year they, they were imperious, but this year, yeah, there's a, there's a lot more uh, competition for, for, the, um, for the, uh, um, the, the championship um, as opposed to uh, the, uh, the, the title race last year. And Michael, we know you love the Asian Champions League from a broader perspective. Johor Darul Tazim progressed at the expense of Ulsan and Kawasaki uh, Frontale. Uh, that was extraordinary. And Yokohama F. Marinos under Kevin Musket topped their group. So they've set up uh, a clash against fellow Japanese side Vissel Kobe on August 18. Uh, so Johor Darul Tazim, that was the uh, one of the biggest stories uh, certainly out of the east zone of the Asian Champions League. Uh, but for Australia, the coefficient uh, is cooked. It is cooked. In Sydney, um, I think 16 matches they've played, something like 16 or 17 matches they've played in Asian Champions League football, and they've won one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Melbourne Victory's uh, record at one point wasn't looking too much better. Diego Maradona's Hand of God shirt, we know that it was up for auction and it's fetched £7.1 million, with some reports claiming it is now the most expensive piece of sports memorabilia ever sold. British auction house Sotheby's estimated a sale between 4 to £6 million. The eventual price moves it past the original Olympic Manifesto, if you don't mind, from 1892, which sold for £8.8 million US dollars, seven million US, uh, seven million pounds uh, in 2019. Rob, we know the shirt had been in possession of uh, Steve Hodge, who took the field that day in 1986 at the Mexico World Cup, and now the Argentine Football Association have said all along they thought it was theirs. Uh, they think it's the uh, the property of the nation. They want to have it in their hands. Uh, where's this one going to fall? Well, unless um, some very generous uh, Argentinian uh, billionaire bought it, uh, is I there think... any of those, Rob? I don't think there is an Argentinian. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, we have seen such a magnanimity uh, in the past, but uh, uh, you would have thought that they might have wanted to act before the auction um, to I would have thought uh, so. put their hand up for that. But uh, uh, no, well done, Steve Hodge. The, they should have the... bought it. I mean, they, they should have bought it. I mean, it's going to be worth much, much more than that. And um, I heard. Um, our, our colleague Tim Vickery uh, on BBC Sports saying that uh, they believe a Middle Eastern um, entity has purchased it. So, um, yeah, if it's one of the royal families out of the Middle East, let's hope they have a nice little, um, nice bit of generosity in their bodies and they might uh, loan it out to the Argentine Football Association. Well, hey, that. mate, we, we talk a bit about sports washing on the show. What uh, it's a good opportunity. Good PR. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know what the entity is or who they are from the Middle East, but we understand it's Middle Eastern money that's purchased. But I think that's a good investment, Willem. I, I don't think that's a lot of money for that shirt. It's, no. it's probably the, the most significant, one of the most significant shirts in the history of the game. I would think that one. The most 
expensive piece of sports memorabilia ever sold. Hard to verify, but yeah, extraordinary if that is to be the case. And we're going to round out with the CONCACAF Champions League. We've spoken Asian Champions League. We've spoken European Champions League. The Seattle Sounders have become the first MLS side to win uh, that tournament, winning the second leg of their final against Club Universidad Nacional of Mexico 3-0. No US side has won the Champions League since its rebrand in 2008. Prior to that, only LA Galaxy and DC United had won the predecessor, the Champions Cup, which ran from 1962. So, Michael, that breaks Mexican club's dominance. Uh, They'd won the previous 16 finals. So the Yanks will be up and about. They will be up and about. And that club, Seattle Sanders, is the benchmark club in the MLS uh, in North American football. They are leading the way. So congratulations to them. That's a big result because the Mexican clubs all hauled by... They're as good as any um, South American club, for, for sure. You know, they're obviously not as um, significant as the clubs in Europe, but um, they're, they're big, big, proud football clubs, the Mexican clubs. So well done to Seattle Sounders, who've had um, good links to Australia with Brad Smith and John Hutchinson uh, over recent years. And, of course, uh, our good mate Dean Hennessy's dad, Terry, who coached them uh, right. uh, at one point, as, uh, as they know, uh, used to very proudly tell us... Um, when he was a regular on the show. All right, well, well done. Um, after the break, we're going to talk to Tom Smith. He's former News Limited Journal. He's now with Keep Up, the uh, uh, A-League's website, and writes some great articles. Uh, this one about Swindon Town and Clem Mafuni is just a classic. We mentioned it off the top. Uh, it is a, a wonderful football story that could easily become a, a Hollywood movie if uh, a few things go their way over the course of the next couple of weeks. So stick around. Tom Smithy's next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. And we said off the top of the show that everybody who loves football loves a rags to riches, backs to the wall, come back from the brink. And when an Aussie's involved and they're the white knight in the home of football, it makes the story all the better. And that's the story of Clem Mafuni at Swindon Town. And Keep Ups, Tom Smithy wrote a fantastic article this week uh, detailing the journey of Mafuni, who's uh, taken the Robins to the brink of Wembley. And he joins us now. How are you, Tom? I'm very well, but not not as well as the Swindon Town fans, to be honest. No, no, not at all. So the the way we see it, um, so Swindon Town are in seventh spot, but uh, uh, in League Two, the uh, the top three teams automatically uh, go through to for promotion, and it's the four uh, teams that follow that play in in the playoffs. So so. Um, at the moment, Swindon really they they, they need to win uh, this weekend and uh, and make sure that uh, that they've got the the spot uh, locked away against Walsall. But um, that, that's uh, that's entirely likely given that uh, Walsall are, you know probably uh, uh, on the beach already. Well, yes, I mean there's a whole range of scenarios could actually play out. Technically, they could get one of those top three spots. It would require a, a fairly freak set of results ahead of them, but. Um, the the win they had, or the, they've had two great wins in the last week. They beat Forest Green um, last weekend, who were, who were uh, top of the table. It was an unexpected uh, 2-1 win when they were down to 10 men for a large part of it and, and hung on through 10 minutes of injury time. Uh, I spoke to, to Clem Morfini straight after that, and he was like, he could hardly speak. He was, you know, so excited. And uh, and then they won again in the week with a late goal, and that's taken them into, into seventh place, as you say, one of the playoff position so realistically yes a win away to Walsall on on Saturday or early Sunday our time uh, turns that into into reality and then they're into the 
the playoffs and if they win their semi-final, they're at Wembley. And, and it's really insane when you think that uh, Glenn took over the club as the sort of sole owner last July. And honestly, some of the stuff that he told me that, you know, the, the ground, no, the, no bills have been paid for, for months. So the ground was unprepared. The pitch hadn't been mowed. Uh, the whole situation, they had six players on contract and no manager, no chief executive, no football director, nobody like that. And so he just quickly set about rebuilding that club. And and just he's a very straightforward guy. He started as a plumber in his bedroom and built a business, which is now a multi-million dollar business in, in Thailand, in the US, in the UK and, and, and in Australia. And he's clearly just a straightforward guy to deal with. And he just said to people, right, what do you need? How can we do this quickly and effectively? And um, they never expected in a million years to, to be where they are. He, he said to me, we wanted to solidify our place in, in League Two and, um, and, then, and then build from there. But now they're on the, the brink of something quite remarkable. Yeah, they sure are. And, um, and so most Australians who follow the game would never have heard of Clem Morfuni, let alone his, uh, his plumbing business. Uh, and to, to find him in this position is, is just a, a little surreal. But when you read the story that you wrote on Keep Up and you, you talk about his uh, trajectory in business and how he, he started out uh, in sponsorship and then got involved as a small stakeholder and then and just tell us it was a quirk of the, uh, the uh, ownership uh, regulations uh, of Swindon Town that, that gave him the first choice to buy when the majority owner wanted to sell? Yeah, he's a, a, a smart businessman and, uh, at heart and uh, having got involved with firstly a non-league team in England um, and then uh, through complete circumstances, freakish circumstance where his finance director was at a business lunch, ended up sitting next to a, a friend of the then owner of Swindon Town and he became involved as a sponsor and then bought a, a stake in the club as vice chairman um, but he asserted one important sentence, which was that if the club was ever to be sold, he had to be given right of refusal. So when the, the owner lined up an American, I think it was American potential buyer um, that no one knew anything about, uh, Clem was able to say, well, hold on a minute, I'm supposed to be given first refusal. And it went all the way to the high court in England and he won. Uh, and that was last July, as I say, when he, the, uh, the high court said, that's it, you're the, uh, the clean owner. And um, his 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 background is is um, basically football. He loves football. He, uh, he he's a season ticket holder at Sydney FC, but also at Tottenham. So he sort of shuttles back and forth between the UK and, and Australia, and, and he still plays five aside and eleven aside every week. Absolutely, just loves football. And so I think the idea of getting involved in a club which he describes as not too big and not too small, like it's a community club. It's very important to the town, but it's not so big that people lose touch with it. Um, it's just absolutely tickled his fancy, and he uh, he's, he plays five a side with the supporters, uh, people who queued up to buy season ticket holders. Uh, sorry, to buy season tickets. The other uh, the start of the season did a double take when they realised he was walking up and down, shaking everybody's hand, saying thank you in person. And mm-hmm. that's the sort of way he does business. So uh, I, I think it's as you alluded to. I think it's a great football story. It's a great rags to riches story. And I'm now rooting heavily for the first time in my life for Swindon Town. When I started reading this, I was just enthralled that someone with his with Clem's background has ended up in the position that you've explained. But uh, then I then I sort of did a little bit more research, and you've alluded to it. But he has developed a um, a great relationship with the, the the rusted on Swindon Town fans. In fact, they've been getting huge crowds because obviously they've been successful. But 
Um, it seems to me he's developed a bit of cult-like status. Is, is that right? Can you just tell us a little bit more about how much the fans are loving him at the moment? Well, when I did the story, and I, I spoke to Clem a couple of times, I spoke to you know, interview with him over coffee in Sydney, and then I spoke to him on the phone when he was over there, and uh, he told me a lot of, of really interesting stuff, but you can't always take you know one person's word for it. So I quietly did some research uh, with the Swindon Town uh, sort of fans there online stuff, and actually spoke to a couple of people over there um, through sort of friends of friends. And all the feedback I got was he's really straightforward. He's sat down and explained the financial situation of the club. So when he took over, the debts of Swindon Town were four and a half million pounds, which is what, eight, eight and a half million dollars. And he's been working away at that with repayment plans, doing deals with the creditors. And he showed all the accounts to the fans. He said, this is where we're down to it's about one and a half million now. And this is the repayment plan. And most crucially of all, which we haven't actually touched on yet, he is buying the ground that Swindon play in, uh, their home ground for more than a century, but he's buying it in partnership with the Supporters Trust. And the legal niceties of this being worked through and the exact proportion of funding, etc. But the uh, the actual deal has been done. The council who own the county ground in Swindon have agreed to sell it. The Supporters Trust and Clem have agreed to buy it. And that's, that sort of sale document has been signed. And all the feedback I got was that he's a man of his word. He's absolutely straightforward. And this is what he wants to do. And so they trust him. He's not, you know, some sugar daddy who's come in full of promises and, and they're taking him at his word. People have done their research. And so far, he's delivered on everything that he said he would. And, uh, you know, that's all. I have no reason to uh, to report anything but that. And um, that's what makes it such a good story that, you know, he's put his money where his mouth is and he's, he's making things happen. It's not throwing billions in there. They're, they're, he's trying to build a sustainable business that um, the money coming in, you know, from, from player sales and TV contracts and all that kind of thing, effectively pays for the club eventually. He wants it to be self-sustaining um, so that, as he put it, when I'm dead, there are generations of Swindon fans afterwards who can continue to watch the club. Well, it is an incredible story. I mean, you, you, you the one item that, uh, if you can just expand a little bit more about, was that um, I'm sure there's no... Um, no sign of expense was spared when he decided to go to the High Court to enforce his right of first refusal. I mean, that in itself is quite a remarkable little story within the bigger story. Um, how did that come about? Uh, did um, did the major shareholder just try and uh, blank him or or just ignore that he he had that contractual right and? I mean that must have been a journey in it, in it, in its own uh, in its own self. Yeah, that all played out in as they in the high court, and there was an awful lot of toing and froing and and swapping of documents and all that kind of thing. And um, I think at the, at the end of the day, uh, the, the the Swindon fans have certainly heavily turned against um, the previous owner Lee Power, and were very unhappy with the, the shell of a club that it, you know it was a it was a club in chaos. As I say bills hadn't been paid, and and he was. He was trying to get out and had lined up this, this other buyer. Um, I, I don't know the the, uh, the sums involved. So I don't know whether this other buyer was, was offering more, you know, what the exact situation was. Um, but the fact that, that a guy would pursue it and go, no, this is, hold on, this, you know, I've got this, I think this is my, my right to do this and I want to do it and I want to spend the money and, and rebuild this club. Um, as you say, I think it, it's one of the things that fills the fans full of confidence is that he went all the way to the, to the high court and said it's a matter of principle now, and and won. And um, the uh, it, it's hard to overstate what a, a schmozzle the club was in and and was, 
and with literally six contracted players, you know, weeks out. This was July. This is weeks out from the start of the season. They should have started playing preseason friendlies by then, and they hadn't. And they found a good young manager, and they don't pay for players. There is no money. There's no transfer fund. Uh, all the money's gone into literally repainting the stadium, getting everything sorted out like that. So they've they've got these young players and, and sort of journeymen who've come back to the club and some loans and that kind of thing. And uh, and this this remarkable story that they're, they're way overachieving for what they are. Um, and I think the the hard thing as always in this situation will be if they, if they do fall short, will be not feeling disappointment. Clem said to me, whatever happens this season is an unmitigated success. We have stabilised the club. We've paid off most of the debt. We've bought the ground. And we've got that. We've shown what we can do on the pitch. If we don't quite get there, if we don't get to Wembley, it's still a fantastic season. The Wembley would be an incredible bonus. But um, I think the, the problem is the fans, you know, Twindon's an hour and a half from, uh, from Wembley, but I reckon the fans think they can almost touch it. And because uh, it's been so unlikely, this, this journey. And, um, you know, I, but I do hope for their sake that they can go on and do it. One final one before we let you go. You mentioned the, the good young coach and, and you're uh, referring to Ben Garner, but uh, he, he came uh, with a, a, a pretty average record. Uh, I mean, his most recent experience was getting sacked from Bristol Rovers after uh, uh, winning six of 33 starts. Uh, he... Um, his Wikipedia entry, for what it's worth, says uh, he was mentored by Jose Marino when he did his uh, UEFA Pro license back in 2014. And uh, one of his other inspirations is uh, is Terry Venable. So, I mean, just tell us how uh, Clem plucked him out of nowhere to to, to help him um, transform the club. Well, Clem is quite connected to um, a sort of network of people like, uh, for instance, Tim Cahill and, and Harry Gill. He's spoken to both of those guys. And- I think he's the sort of guy who takes advice and, you know, like I said before, he's quite straightforward and if he needs some information, he'll go and find it. And, um, yeah, Ghana is, uh, from, from memory, he was, didn't really have a, a proper career as a player and was one of those guys who decided very young to be a, a coach. And he, um, has good raps, but he's, but he's very young. And I think that, that, um, that first appointment was, you know, whether it was too young or whatever, this is, a squad that more suits the, the, the style he wants to play. They're playing decent football from all accounts. Um, and I think in those situations, when there's nothing to lose in a sense, that, that can be the making of a, of a coach who he, he's got to live and die by his wits and by his coaching ability and, and his eye for a player. And, you know, there's no sort of safety net. Um, and, but also really no, no pressure. I mean, um, Swindon came very close to, dropping out of the league previously and out of the whole football league. And so I guess this, the, being in, in League Two, the fans are so disillusioned. You know, uh, the odd win here or there is, is, is initially just gets people excited. And then momentum carries you a long way. I mean, you know, I coach under 13. A couple of wins change the whole mood of a, of a team. And suddenly they go onto a pitch as, as different players. And, and I think weird in, in professional football, especially at that level, a couple of wins gets you momentum and suddenly you start, believing in yourself um, but there's, there's, there's definite credibility there for him by the way that they've had some reverses this year they've lost a couple of games that they were expected to win and come back and you know this, this is a threadbare squad as I said before made up of loanies and, and journeymen and some very young players and they've come back and they've, they've addressed those reverses and they've, they've kept winning they had that brilliant win against Forest Green um, and now they stand on the, the brink of something special and, um, and I said I hope for their sake they can continue it because they deserve it 
Hey, Tom, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, and, uh, mate, until until we talk to you next time. My pleasure, guys. Anytime. Not at all. Tom Smithies from Keep Up. Okay, stick around after the break. Willem is back, and we are going to talk more Socceroos and Matildas on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box Locks. It's time to talk Socceroos and Matildas around the world with Willem. But before we do, the clock is ticking, boys, because we are very close. You might even be listening on Mother's Day. If it's not Mother's Day yet when you're listening, or if it is, get into. Where do they need to get into, Willem? Chemist Warehouse. Of course they do. No pregnant pauses on this show. So if you need your Mother's Day gift in a jiffy, Get free, fast delivery on big brand fragrances from Chemist Warehouse. Roberto Cavalli, 75 mils, 49.99. Issy Miyake, 100 mils, 69.99. Mark Jacobs, Daisy, I love that fragrance, 100 mils, 79.99. And Lancôme Trésor, 100 mils, $109.99. Just spend more than $30 on fragrances and get free, fast delivery within three hours. The offer ends... 3 p.m. local time on the 8th of May, so you can get delivery to your home. Just make sure that you keep mum away. Chemist Warehouse, with a great savings uh, every single day. I certainly are, Rob. I took Margaret Elizabeth out last night. Uh, we had to see my youngest daughter, Megan, uh, performing at one of the university's programs, my mum, mm. and she said, stop telling private stories on your radio program. <laughs> Where did she hear the leak? She uh, she listens from time to time. I thought she stopped oh, listening nice. actually, but uh, she listened to that one. And she's... happy Mother's Day, Margaret Elizabeth. That's right. Um, we she'll love be, you. She'll probably be and... back for some more, but um, just make yeah. sure you tell that son of yours to behave. And uh, oh, she was boy. getting stuck into me about um, <laughs> who she was going to vote for in the election. Uh, that didn't go down too well. I can tell you. Oh, okay, <laughs> it's uh, moving right along. <laughs> we'll be here all night if we start talking about that. Correct. <laughs> Okay, what do you, well, yeah, it's, she wouldn't be a, a left-leaning fellow as you refer to me, would you, Michael? Uh, Socceroos and Matildas essential yeah. for the Green and Gold Army. Packages are on sale for the Socceroos playoff tour in June, which features 11 nights in Doha and three cutthroat international fixtures. Between cheering on the Socceroos, there's a guided tour of Sukhwakif, trips to the Banana Island Resort and Museum of Islamic Art, and a twilight desert safari. Places are filling fast, so book now at ggatravel.com.au. And Michael, you have got some news. On ticket sales for the World Cup, they are being uh, snapped up as you would expect. They are. 23.5 million ticket requests were filled during the second ticket sales phase for the World Cup in Qatar. The random selection draw sales period ended on April 28. Uh, The most number of ticket applications submitted by a single country came from, you guessed it, Argentina. Uh, It was followed by Brazil, England, France, Mexico, Saudi Arabia, and the United States in terms of ticket demand for the group stage matches. The f- most popular single matches were Argentina versus Mexico, Argentina versus Saudi Arabia. This game, which I know is going to be absolutely ginormous, England versus the USA, and Poland versus Argentina. So the Argentinians, they might not have any billionaires that can buy Diego's shirt, but I tell you what, they hock everything to get on a plane and get over to Qatar because they love their World Cup football, Rob. 
Oh, well, you know, as much as I'm um, sort of uh, wallowing in misery with all of the other Azzurri fans, uh, you know, as you get used to the idea that they're not going to be there and you start focusing on the event itself um, and some of those games you just talked about, um, you just start to feel that excitement, don't you? And, and like, I know it's only May, but uh, um, I, I think it would be a wonderful um, event, um, the fact that it will be uniquely held in such small proximity. Yes, we know, and we've covered all of the details of the story around Qatar, and, uh, and we don't resolve from any of those. But insofar as a sporting event is concerned and a, and a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, um, then, um, you know, I think uh, uh, the Middle East is a beautiful place to, to go and visit. The people are wonderful. The hospitality is exceptional, and the football should be... Uh, the coffee's you know, good the... at that time of year. Mm. The weather is mm. simply spectacular. And, and, and is it true, Edge? I know we've got to talk a bit more uh, soccer as Matildas, but but because of the, the timing of the event and the fact that it'll be mid-season in the next season, we're not going to be seeing players who are absolutely stuffed at the end of their uh, uh, their, their domestic seasons. So, uh, you know, the it theory is... It is a new dynamic, isn't it? Because it's obviously the big European leagues will be having, and uh, South American leagues will be having a, a mid-season break for the first time because of the unique calendar position of this event to being held in the in the uh, Middle East in the winter to avoid the stifling temperatures of summer. So, um, yeah, that's right. It's a new dynamic that uh, obviously uh, clubs uh, and um, and uh, national teams will need to get their head around. But, yeah, you, you're right, Rob. It could, it could uh, lead for players being in top nick. But I think they're in top nick anyway, aren't they, when they go to World Cups? Well, yeah, I guess the adrenaline just pumps up, doesn't it? Well, I think they... I, I mean, if you're... Uh, you're playing for one of those big nations and you're a chance to win a World Cup. I think you structure your training year around being in peak form for that period of time, don't you? You would prioritise that over your club? I think I would be pretty excited if I was playing for Australia. What you got for us, Willem? Yeah, let's chat Matildas. Let's chat English Women's Super League. Arsenal have made sure that it's going to go down to the final day after Caitlin Ford scored a double to help them to a 3-0 win over Tottenham and keep the heat on Chelsea. Chelsea take a one-point lead into uh, Saturday's last round of fixtures. All matches to be played at 9pm Australian Eastern Time, so prime time Saturday evening. Uh, Arsenal have Manchester... Uh, rather, Chelsea have Manchester United at home. Arsenal are away to West Ham. Michael, how's this one going to conclude? Well, I mean... It- it's, uh, it's there for Chelsea to lose, isn't it? But they've got the tougher game in the in the final round, so there's still a chance. And Arsenal have just been they've kept winning, uh, and they obviously uh, in that catch up game was an important result for them to get a win. So we'll see. Chelsea's just been you know they had a, a very narrow win against Birmingham, who are pretty much rubbish, and uh, and obviously a close win over Tottenham of recent times. While Arsenal's been romping home, so yeah, I, I wouldn't um, you know it's not not done and dusted, but yeah, it's there for Chelsea to win. Let's hope, um, for Australian sake, uh, Samantha Kerr can uh, maybe sink the winner and uh, have a great uh, celebration, which will be um, well-deserved if they win it. Silverware on offer for another couple of Aussies. Firstly, Ellie Carpenter. Uh, Leon, they've reached the final of the Champions League. They defeated PSG pretty resoundingly over their two semi-finals. 5-3 on aggregate it was, so they faced Barcelona on May 22. And Joe Montemuro as well. He is, of course... Of course, the coach of Juventus. The beaten AC Milan 11-4 on aggregate. That's also resounding uh, of the semi-finals of the Coppa Italia. So they meet Roma in the final on May 21. 
Not such good news, unfortunately, Rob, for Jackson Irvine and St Pauli. The wheels have really fallen off there as they pushed for promotion to the Bundesliga. Jackson was absent again as they dropped points on the weekend and slid to fifth uh, with two remaining. So that's a story that we were cheering on and watching pretty clearly. Unfortunately, it hasn't come off this season. No, it, uh, it's a bit of a shame uh, that um, that things uh, just sort of uh, fell apart uh, late in the season. The... Um They've got Dusseldorf this weekend, who are coming tenth, um, but no guarantee of winning that one. Uh, so yeah, for a point, a period there that they looked like they were, you know, automatic promotion bound, but um, yeah, not to be this season. Mate. What about down in League One, Michael? The uh, the semi-finals are set there. Mass Luongo and Bailey Wright are going to go head to head over the next week. Sheffield Wednesday and Sunderland, the clubs are representing, of course. The first leg in the early hours of Saturday morning, the second the early hours of Tuesday morning, and the winner will fancy themselves against either Wickham Wanderers or. Or MK Don. So some reward on offer uh, for one of those two socceroos uh, after some seriously hard graft. We know that that's what uh, League One's all about. It is all about that. Two big clubs, those two clubs, those boys are representing. So good luck to them. Toss of the coin job, that one. But yeah, whoever gets through that, um, let's hope they get up to the championship. And finally, good luck to the Pararoos. They're over in Spain about to compete in the IFCPF World Cup. Uh, they kick off against Iran within the next couple of days and following that they'll play the USA. They are of course our team for athletes with cerebral palsy, acquired brain injuries and or symptoms of uh, symptoms acquired from stroke. The great David Barber, he of 100 caps is still there at 42 and there are potential World Cup debuts for Alessandro Lavagetta, Jeremy Boyce and Timothy Blow. So good luck to the Pararoos. We'll be uh, keeping an eye on them and have an update this time next week. Sure will um, and uh, I know my little bloke Alexander uh, has uh, listeners to our show know, 17 years old, lives with cerebral palsy, he's in a wheelchair and him and all his mates out at Glen Allen School in Glen Waverley and all the other special schools and all the other kids and adults out there with cerebral palsy just love uh, watching the Pararoos who represent us so proudly. So uh, uh, go to the Grain and Gold and um, we'll be following you uh, with uh, very, very close interest as, uh, as you go through your stuff. And can I just make a special um, shout out to uh, Casey Rebelt, who became uh, the first female referee for an A-League match this season. Only the second female referee ever to officiate in the men's A-League. So that is some achievement. Uh, uh, She uh, refereed Perth and Western Sydney last weekend. So well done, Casey. That's a a good achievement. And um, let's hope her career goes from strength to the strength. Yeah, no, excellent edge, and uh, and that is one way to, to really uh, fast forward equality in uh, in sport by uh, by uh, picking the best quality umpires and uh, and referees and officials that there are out there. So well done, Casey. Congratulations on your elevation and uh, a long career ahead of you. We hope uh, all the best from all the boys on Box to Box. Well, well done. Okay, stick around. Uh, we are going to talk to um, Paddy Dominguez. He is the president of the Professional Football Agents Association, the founder of a public sports management, about the life and times of uh, the football super agent Mino Raiola, who passed away after a long illness this week at the age of just 54. Lots of opinions about Mino. Uh, We're going to find out what Paddy thinks uh, of uh, the man's career and his legacy into the future. Stick around. That's all next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Uh, we like to talk as much about the issues of football off the park as we do on it. And when the passing of uh, football super agent Mina Raiola was reported earlier this week at the age of just 
54 after a long illness. Uh, it really was the end of an era for the self-styled agent who became one of the very first super agents and uh, to join us to discuss uh, his legacy and, uh, and his career, the founder of Republic Sports Management and president of the Professional Football Agents Association, Paddy Dominguez. How are you, Paddy? Good, thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. No, not at all, Paddy. And uh, and so you knew you knew Mino, and as, as uh, before COVID, you were over at a FIFA conference uh, with him, where a lot of issues around agents were discussed. Uh, um, as a, as a person, uh, the, the story is just fascinating. I think those of us who didn't know him up until this past week uh, had this idea of him as uh, as this. Uh, uh, man about town who would have been uh, swanning the corridors of power but in, in reality he was a, a, a five foot seven 16 stone uh, uh, Italian who moved to the Netherlands to got his uh, his first deal done uh, at his family's pizza restaurant <laughs> yeah. yeah very much so I mean uh, obviously Mino uh, of the super agents he's probably the most uh, publicised guy and, and yeah, I mean I did enjoy speaking to the media and the media attention he never shied away from it um, so you know the media obviously have always painted uh, pictures of agents and uh, Mino tried to address some of those things in his own unique sort of style um, but yeah I think generally speaking people you know they only see the, the public facade that's presented they don't really realise all the work that goes in behind the scenes and Mino certainly was a hard worker uh, behind the scenes, as is evidenced by the kinds of clients, the kinds of fees that he, he managed to earn during his, his time. Uh, Paddy, um, he was renowned for uh, speaking to journalists and giving them truth bombs. Um, just only a few weeks ago, he said this, and I just want, uh, but I'll give you the quote and then I'll ask you to just reflect on how significant and how much power he wielded in the world of football. But he said... Um, Journalist, uh, a journalist uh, made a bit of an attack on him and said that uh, agents were greedy, they suck money out of the game, uh, and they're manipulative. And he responded to the journalist by saying, fine, we're all that, we're the bad guys, but who is it that you call in the middle of the night when you want to sign a player, or even more so, when you need a shift a player? It's me, it's people like me. You say we're the problem, and then you come to us again and again and again. <laughs> And he did stand up for the role of the agent uh, in the world of football at a time when FIFA's um, looking to re-regulate agents uh, in, a, in a very big way. But um, just can you reflect on the, the heavy lifting, lifting Mino did in that world, um, standing up for agents and the role that they have in the game? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, a lot of agents, I mean, I mean, football agents in general, they suffer from poor reputational capital and have done for a long time. Um, that's partly due to, and, and again, I mean, I was happy to have some of the fees, particularly I think everybody references the Paul Pogba deal, the kinds of fees that were paid there. Um, so that just naturally gives an impression of greed. However, I think, you know, if he was here, he would tell you the point is not, the fact that Mino Ayola may have received 40 plus million pounds from that deal in fees, it's not so much his greed. Somebody was willing to pay Mino that money. That's, I mean, asking for the money is not, is not greedy. The people who pay the money are paying that money because they're happy to pay that money. Um, it's not really a question of the agent being greedy. If they didn't want him to receive that money and they wanted to pay a lesser figure, he would have had to accept a lesser figure. Um, so it's, it's something that I think it's easy to blame the agents. 
um, there, there's no agent stakeholder group, which is something that we're trying to address at the moment. And as such, they become an easy target in these deals. But people don't get to see the roles that the clubs play in trying to exploit players and various other things. Um, it's just easy to blame the agents. And Nino was strong on trying to, um, I suppose, educate people, uh, make them realise that actually if he doesn't just show up on the day and go say the deal and get paid a lot of money, um, a lot of parties offered him a lot of money for that deal to go through. Uh, it's not a crime for him to accept that. Um, I would ask anybody who was sat in his seat if uh, two clubs are willing to pay you 40 plus million pounds, would you say no? Um, so accepting it's not his fault and it's not a crime. If I was a Man United fan, I'd probably want to know from my club, why are you willing to pay that kind of money? Um, but nobody, no Man United fan wanted to question Man United as to why they pay that kind of cash. So he was always battling to try and, 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 I suppose, give people a look behind the curtain, as it were, to let them see, you know, that there is a lot more goes into these deals. And, and like he said, when things go wrong, they also get the blame. If, you know, and he had to manage Paul's time at Manchester United. Frequently, you would have seen many reports about Paul being unhappy, wanting to move, etc. There's a lot of stress behind the scenes that people don't get to see. Well, he's obviously um, endeared himself to his players and... Um I mean, it's incredible stable of players that he's represented over the time and very few lefties stable. And, uh, and media reporting suggests that he, he didn't have contracts with his players. He, he just had a, a handshake and said to them, uh, you know, you can leave when you want to leave, but uh, very few of them did. But Dennis Burkamp, Pav, Pavel uh, Nedved, um, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, Mario uh, Balotelli, and even uh, modern generation players like Erling Haaland. And I, I saw the tweet... Um, from Erling Haaland when Amino um, uh, passed away. He, he simply tweeted a picture of him and Mino with uh, the words, the best. So obviously he was loved by his players, wasn't he? That's how we judge people, right? By results. And if we're doing that in Mino's case, um, I, I actually struggle to think of a client he had who left him, um, which is unusual. And bear in mind, the names and the people that you've just mentioned, um, they would have had many super agents and just agents in general contacting them to represent them. Um, clearly, what Mino has said to these guys has resonated with them. Um, they signed with him. They trusted him. Um, and, yeah, he's with some of those guys like Zlatan. He's been with him for an awful long time. Um, so that kind of tells you that the guy did his job properly and did it well. Um, and then that's the players talking mostly about that. So, yeah, he's, you know, in, in our industry, he certainly performed very, very well and was probably the top performer for a long period of time of that business at that, at that high end as well. I mean, that's probably most people would suspect that to be the case. The uh, article that uh, was published in the article in The Athletic by James Horncastle that, that, that profiled Mina Rayola's uh, career and passing, uh, it sort of ends with... Uh, a, a, an explanation from Mino as to, to why he felt the, the, the kind of money we've been discussing uh, was justified. And, and that was largely around the fact that football is part of the entertainment industry, that it's, uh, uh, it's part of an industry where billions and billions of dollars go around and that, uh, you know, we've got to accept the fact that a lot of these footballers are young uh, guys whose expertise is around football. It's not around business. It's not around negotiation. And if they're going to get a fair slice of the pie, then uh, they need somebody who knows their way around this world to to be able to manufacture it. And if the the slice of the action for the agent is uh, uh, larger than it would be 
in other industries, well, that's just the way of the world. Yeah, 100%. He was, he's always trying to explain that, that aspect. To, it is entertainment because, you know, how many people around the globe does the Premier League entertain every week? Um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of people. And, uh, you know, as the clubs and all the other stakeholders in football gain more and more money and then huge amounts, vast amounts of money, the guys who train and play and actually provide the entertainment are the footballers. Nobody pays to see how a CEO gets on during his day. Um, so ultimately, as a lot of money goes towards the footballers, the roles of the agents, as it was growing, was to make sure the players didn't get exploited. Um, and that's still fundamentally an agent's role today, is, is to prevent players from being exploited. An agent should know the marketplace. He should make sure that a player is getting a, a fair and commensurate deal with his talent and where he sits in the market. Um, I mean, I was heavy on, on, on making sure people understood he is a marketplace, and like other marketplaces, the market sort of sets itself, um, its, its standards, its costs, fees, etc. And like I said, at the very beginning, Mino got paid, but people felt they were happy to pay him. That doesn't make the man greedy. Um, he accepted what these guys were offering him. So, like I said, I don't know many people who'd walk down the street and turn down £50 million pounds if it was offered to them. No, I don't think I know any of them either, Paddy. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, we couldn't have had a better person to, to discuss it. Uh, you're the leading voice in football management in Australia, the president of the Professional Football Agents Association, uh, um, and uh, we're really grateful that, uh, that you joined us to, to have a yarn about the, the passing of uh, what many would consider a, a, a football super agent titan, uh, Mino Raiola. Absolutely. Thanks a million, guys, for having me on, and, and my condolences to Mino and his family and friends. Uh, obviously, it's it's sad that the man's lost his life at an early age, uh, but he's left a big legacy behind, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, let's not forget somebody's lost their life here. Yep, well said, Paddy. Paddy Dominguez, uh, after the break, we're going to talk more football. We haven't even got into the Champions League. What a week this was. The Championship this weekend ahead. It's the final round. There's plenty to talk to. We'll talk about it all next in stoppage time on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. This is Box to Box. This is stoppage time. Really enjoyed uh, our conversation so far with Tom Smithies and Menno Rayola's career, discussing it with Paddy Dominguez, the uh, president of the Professional Football Agents Association. But uh, some might suggest we've been burying the lead because whilst we've mentioned the scores already, we haven't talked in detail about what an epic week of Champions League football we had, Derek. Uh, um, I got up early and, in fact, didn't watch both games, listened to both games on BBC, on the radio, and uh, you just... You could not believe what you were hearing, particularly as uh, the the final stages of that match at the uh, Santiago Bernabeu played out. I think you made the right choice listening to the radio, Rob. I did too. I sometimes find that, sometimes find those global feeds for the television not the most compelling commentary mm. sometimes. And I feel like John Murray and, you know, those kind of the atmosphere that comes through the radio and, and what an atmosphere it was at. Real Madrid, uh, of course, because uh, they were dead and buried. Uh, you know, they'd, they'd gone down uh, two uh, by two goals four times in this fixture, and with the clock ticking over to ninety minutes, uh, you know, City fans would have been certainly would have been on TripAdvisor and Booking dot com looking for their how they were going to get to and stay in Paris for the final. But Rodrigo, the substitute, give give Ancelotti some credit. 
um, out of nowhere, really. It was almost a little bit reminiscent of Manchester United against Bayern Munich in that final all those years ago, that kind of bang-bang in the, the dying seconds of the game. And I think after that happened, uh, Man City were a bit of a punch-drunk boxer, just sort of swaying and throwing some punches but not landing them. And I think it was only a matter of time that that man Benzema, who is only a couple of goals away now from being the top uh, scorer uh, of all time in a season. Uh, you know, he's hunting down Cristiano's record. I think he might still need a hat-trick or something in the final, but you you might not write him off given the um, the, for, the form that, that he's in. And once again, it is uh, Manchester City looking back on another season where they're not going to win the Champions League. It's what Pep Guardiola ostensibly was brought in to do this is his sixth campaign uh with city they have they've you know to be fair to them they have actually been in the conversation nearly every season many they got to the final of course and lost to chelsea last year they've lost in the semi-final stage now a number of times but they're so they're always in that conversation but real madrid who have just been crowned champions of spain uh, you know, no one talks about this club as vintage Real Madrid, and they might have to now because uh, they could be uh, doing an unprecedented double. And um, Rob, I know you were watching this game closely. What, what were your reflections as you were listening in? Well, I guess um, the, uh, the the major point that you, you had to notice when that as the game played out that. Uh, it, you knew there was a sense of the inevitable that the uh, uh, game would would build up to a crescendo because uh, the longer it went on and the longer there was no goal scored, that um, Real would would throw the kitchen sink at um, at Manchester City. And, and when um, they uh, scored, City that is, and 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 went ahead um, on the night, you, you knew that the the tension was just. Going to continue to build, and it did. And then, and those last few minutes, when uh, when the goal was scored to uh, uh, to put them into a position where uh, they uh, they were in with a chance in stoppage time, uh, that's when it almost felt inevitable, didn't it? And uh, and and what we we saw after there uh, was just amazing and and as you say Karim Bezema when he stepped up to, he'd missed I think four penalties and uh, and a couple of the city players were, were walking up to him and reminding him of that um uh and uh, and but he didn't uh, he didn't look like missing that one at all did he it was a great it was a great penalty it wasn't the penenka this time uh you might have expected him to try the trick trick twice but it was low and hard across the keeper exactly what you want your striker to do and um, we thought about the city you know we we're talking about city uh as a club and what they've been built to do and their ownership. Uh, how do you feel uh, things will be going down in, in Abu Dhabi now, Michael, after another season without this famous trophy in the cabinet? I think you could argue that there's been no greater investment in a football club than what um, the royal family of the United Arab Emirates have invested. So Sheikh Khalifa bin Zayed Al Nayan and his brother Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nayan, that the two key drivers and their instrument to execute that um, Haldun uh, Al Mubarak, who's the chairman, uh, they will be extremely disappointed. Um, they don't like losing. Um, they have uh, made, by global standards, an unprecedented investment in that club to win the Champions League. They they see that as the, you know, the dominant club competition in the world. Uh, they proudly secure the club 
World Cup and they love um, Manchester City going to Abu Dhabi to participate in that event as well. So although it didn't happen last year with Liverpool, but um, I just think that they will be feeling desperately... Um, they won't be angry. They don't, they don't, they're not the sort of people that get angry that, that I know of anyway, but they will be extremely disappointed. And I, I just think this may be the time for Pep to move on because he says he goes at this and hasn't been able to pull it off. And um, they will be asking that question for sure. Yeah, six. And he didn't do it at Bayern Munich either, Edge. So uh, 2011, I think, is the last time that you'll have seen Pep Guardiola on the winner's podium with the... Uh, Barcelona for 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 the Champions League, and I think it's uh, two point three billion that they've invested total in the squad and various other things. Um, part of that was Jack, Jack Grealish, of course, the summer signing, much heralded summer signing, a long chase to to get him. Um, Rob, I don't know. He certainly hasn't had, hasn't had a standout season. I think it's hard because he's in a, such a an amazing squad, but. The chance did fall to him right at the end there, and uh, you know, was that really the was that the last chance for Pep? If you think for this tournament with City, well, you felt that it was, and and when uh, Grealish had that opportunity, I mean, we've also got to take into consideration at this point they're leading one nil. Ancelotti's uh, already taken off Casemiro, Tony Cruz, and Luka Modric, and we think that, uh, as I said earlier, the kitchen sink is about to be thrown at City. Uh, they do have that chance to put the nail in the coffin. And, and look, it was some wonderful work on the edge of the box there by Jack Grealish to control the ball and get around the defenders. But uh, to be fair, it would have been a, a quality pass to, to, to make. But he did have Phil Foden unmarked, uh, who uh, it wasn't a tap-in, but uh, he, he would have been a far greater chance than Grealish had to, to finish that off. And, and, and the, the cameras uh, in the highlights package... Uh, which I looked at afterwards when they uh, panned to Pep Guardiola. Guardiola he uh, he was absolutely gutted, and uh, in hindsight, you, you reflect on it and think, you know, it's almost uh, a moment where he thinks, no, you have to take these chances when they come. It's going to come back and bite you, and uh, you know, it did, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it was a it was a big moment in the game, and I think that's why you buy players like Jack Grealish. I'm sure he'll be having nightmares about that. Later, but I'm sure everyone on Box to Box will, of course, be wishing Real Madrid well as they head to yet another final. And <coughs> I can't, I can't remember who they're playing, to be honest with you. But I'm, I'm sure um, Real Madrid now will uh, will bring the trophy home. What do you think? What do you think, Rob? Well, I'm trying to be humble here, um, and uh, uh, the fact that the final won't be played at the Bernabeu is a huge advantage. But nor will it be played at Anfield. Uh, uh, what I do like, I mean, there are so many layers to, to this result that, that are gratifying, isn't it? So that if in the, um, the, the, the um, outcome of the final that Liverpool don't win, at least um, the uh, the locals don't have to put up with Manchester City fans um, uh, lording it over them. And, and also the gut punch that this has to be to City. They've got Newcastle at home this weekend. And, uh, and we're relying on them to, to slip up at some point. So so that's the next layer to this whole thing that I'm, I'm like every other Liverpool fan, hoping that they're, they're still gutted this weekend and, and this is the, the window of opportunity um, that we have, uh, that we need to slip through. Derek, did you see the footage of Carlo Ancelotti uh, doing the, um, the dance moves on top of the bus when Real Madrid was celebrating 
their um, domestic title win uh, a few days before this game, which is just unbelievable. But um, he was still, I just wonder what his dance moves will be like when uh, he sinks Liverpool's hearts uh, in the final. Well, I mean, the quite extraordinary scenes, I think, on top of that bus moving well for a for um, a, a 60 plus year old guy probably celebrating the fat two edge that he's the first manager to win all five major That's European it. leagues after yeah, you know winning incredible. with Real Madrid yeah. you'd forget that in his first tenure he didn't win the who didn't win uh, La Liga although he he did uh, deliver the Champions League and then got fired um as 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 what happens in um Madrid just, sorry Derek just on on that uh, Rob you know we're all fans of domestic games aren't we NRL and you, know, you with NRL and uh, me with AFL you know we've that, though, both those sports have uh, had a role in our careers but um can you think could you imagine three days before the preliminary final in the AFL or the NRL a team doing a um, you know, a, a, a celebrating a championship through the streets of Sydney or Melbourne in an open decker bus, and um, and all of the hype that comes with that, just as, as a preparation for even bigger games. It's just, it's a remarkable sport, football, the yeah. world game, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. just the fact that they did that two or three days before they fronted up for this game, it's just amazing. I suppose you do have to wonder then whether that did um, play into the fact that there was a a relatively lacklustre start from them in in the uh, in the game itself because uh, I mean let's not forget that it wasn't until stoppage time that they they managed to to uh, to score those goals and Rodrigo if it wasn't for him uh, we'd be talking about City and Liverpool playing in the second uh, all English final in a row but uh, but as you say that's one of the beautiful things we love about football and the Spanish you know that Latin sort of uh, uh, zest for life uh, uh, it, it, it's no surprise that um, that they did that um, and that they weren't far from keeping a lid on it. They were going to celebrate the fact that they won the title and then uh, and just go out and and, um, and leave nothing on the pitch um, in the, the semi final second leg. And uh, yeah, look at that way it worked out. And but to your point just earlier, uh, Edge, about when Real Madrid do beat Liverpool in this final, it will be uh, the fourth time that uh, Ancelotti's picked up the famous old. The famous old trophy, and you know, so Ancelotti was what a year ago, year and a half ago, managing Everton. He's up on the Wirral, uh, looking, you know, deciding what to do with, you know, his life up there. And now he's, you know, looking at some some serious um, some serious records um, with Liverpool. Thinking about records, Liverpool will now play every possible game this season. It, ha- it happens a little bit, but not too much. Um, but because Liverpool have reached this final as well, they've reached the final in every t- tournament uh, they have entered this season. So, uh, look, obviously, I'll doff my cap there to to Liverpool. Uh, there, have, there have been others, but that that's obviously just uh, a, a, you know a fantastic uh, record. And obviously, the quadruple uh, is still very much alive. And um, Derek, uh, let's not forget that you and uh, Michael are actually uh, barracking for Liverpool this weekend. Uh, if I've got my fixture correct. Well, we will. Yeah, we'll move on to the Premier League in a sec. I was just going to let Michael have a chat about uh, Liverpool's new shirt deal. Just while we're on Liverpool, um, what can you tell us there, Michael? Well, as a result of um, a team that has done so spectacularly well, like Liverpool, um, you know, being in being in the final of every available competition and still hunting the uh, the title in the in the league as well, but uh, they're in talks to secure an eighty million pound a year shirt sponsorship deal, the package that would be the most lucrative in football. 
Um, the club's arrangement with Standard Chartered concludes at the end of uh, the 22-23 season, and it's understood talks uh, uh, with them to extend and improve terms have started. And there's also um, uh, some other interested parties. So the current deal's worth £40 million, pounds, but uh, my sources, which are pretty close to the mark, are saying that they'll get double that this time around. And that is, as far as um, you know, brands being involved with a professional sporting club, that is astronomical numbers. They are ast- astronomical numbers, considering there's no... Um, you know, um, related party entity like Etihad is with Manchester City, for example. Uh, this is just a remarkable amount of money that a corporate would pay to be on the front of Rob Rob's club shirt. Yeah, and I think they've probably been having a pretty good ride of it, Standard Chartered, up until this point. That that original deal seems extremely good value now. And yeah, as we just said before, when when your club reaches every major final that it participates in and it's in the most high-profile matches in in world football i think you know and i think liverpool have got every right to um to come and, and and command those those kinds of figures for sure and yes as rob alluded to before we will be liverpool fans uh, this weekend michael because liverpool will. will will play tottenham and uh arsenal i've ma- managed to maintain their two point buffer uh, over over spurs and uh well, tottenham obviously forgetting that if we just if we win every game we're, we're going to finish fourth aren't we well, might finish, might finish third. You, you right. just don't know with Chelsea. I mean, that's right. That's I, right. I, I, no, I think. Um, so, Rob, Rob is obviously um, doesn't have the confidence that we do. I mean, it doesn't matter what happens with Liverpool and Tottenham um, because we're just got to keep winning. I, to be honest, I would, I would like to <laughs> go into that Spurs game not with that horrible, sick feeling in my stomach. To be honest with you, it's not been a happy hunting ground for Arsenal in recent years, and we often. We have been annihilated there quite a lot recently, and I do look at Kane and Son, and I think about what they might be able to yeah. to do to us. I'd much rather go into that with a bit of a buffer. Uh, we've got uh, Leeds at home. Uh, Leeds are fighting for their lives, of course. They've been dragged back into the uh, relegation um, battle as well, in that with Burnley's win uh, at the weekend too. Uh, our, our predictions and projections about Burnley's demise, you know, looking even worse uh, by the week. So, yeah, look, uh, as you said, Man City will will take on Newcastle. They've still got that one-point buffer at the top of the league. Obviously, we want Liverpool to win this late weekend. Uh, Chelsea, obviously, in a bit of free fall at the moment and at the bottom, uh, you know, certainly uh, Everton obviously got a great win over Chelsea. Uh, but they're still the guys in that drop zone at the moment, and and uh, Burnley miraculously with uh, Mike Michael Jackson in charge of the club uh, uh, are, are turning it around. Um, I wanted to talk about the championship quickly, gents. I wanted to last week, but we just ran out of time. It's coming to the 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 pointy end of 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 the tournament now. Uh, Fulham are now champions. They were already promoted, and Alexander Mitrovic has had a, an amazing season, 43 goals um, so far. They've crushed Luton Town 7-0 in the last game. Luton are, are in the in the playoffs, and we'll get on to them in a second, but they've crushed those 7-0. But the big game during the week was Bournemouth taking on Nottingham Forest, and Bournemouth won that with a late winner, which means that Bournemouth also get promoted back from the championship into the Premier League. And for Forest, who have had a great season, they will have to be content with 
playoff football alongside Huddersfield, who are also in there. And it will now go down to one of Luton, Sheffield United and Middlesbrough, who are currently run and uh, managed by Chris Wilder. Middlesbrough sitting outside of the, uh, of the playoffs. They need to win and hope that uh, one of Sheffield United, uh, who were obviously relegated last season, and, and Luton, uh, who have you know defied all the odds this season uh, to do it. So really, really interesting final round of fixtures. I would be keeping that eye on that, that Jensen, because we, we know um, that, you know, these teams will be back playing in the Premier League, uh, you know, Premier League next season. I just, I just wonder, just to close, um, Michael, what do you, how do you reflect on, you know, uh, Fulham, Bournemouth getting promoted? These are kind of, yo-yo-y t- teams now they, they they get the parachute payment they go back up again would it be really good to see a Luton or a Nottingham Forest or someone bolt from that uh, that pack and get into the Premier League and give us a different team this time yeah, it would be good uh, I mean Forest has an incredible history so um, they're a very popular club um, right around the world um, as a result of all of those European nights that they participated in and the legacy and uh and a sort of shadow that Brian Clough puts over that club. But, um, yeah, you'd, you'd want them, and just for John our John Beckett's uh, sake, a great friend of the program, we, we want them to go up. Um, yeah, the, the yo-yo scenario in the Premier League is an interesting one, isn't it? Because it is the system seems to support those clubs. The parachute payments give them such a, a big advantage when they drop down. Uh, if they can hold on to their Premier League list, uh, they invariably bounce back you know Bournemouth and Fulham are a good example of that so yeah um, it just proves how difficult it is to take a club from uh, the lower divisions uh, in the English pyramid all the way up to the Premier League you need um, you need a lot of luck and you need deep 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 pockets they're my reflections you sure do, boys. And uh, let's just not forget Raleigh McGree at Middlesbrough if they can, as much as it would be sad yeah. for Luton Town, um, that uh, if uh, they do get into those playoffs, then that's good for uh, the Socceroos as well because we need every one of our uh, our big-time players in the best of form before uh, we play that uh, that match against the UAE in ooh, a little over a month's time now. All right, boys, well done. Hey, Derek, uh, heroic effort from you. Uh, some of our listeners might have noticed you're a little nasally. The very fact that you are nasally is because you are uh, going through your second bout of COVID, as is your beautiful little Maeve, three years old. So not quite three years old, I don't think. But uh, she's uh, uh, not uh, well either. So all the best to you and the family, mate. Uh, and thanks for uh, for uh, stepping up and, and still uh, uh, joining us for the show this week. No, plenty of football to talk about, Jens. I wouldn't have missed it. Well done, mate. Uh, Michael, um, you're in Sydney um, on some important business. So um, enjoy your trip. Thanks, thanks Roberto. Yes, yeah, looking forward to uh, uh, getting out and seeing a bit of... Uh local NPL New South Wales football this weekend uh, in between my work, yeah. Excellent. And Willem, um, I think he's still sort of lurking there in the background, making sure all the I's are dotted and the T's crossed. Uh, well done to you and, of course, Damien Tardio, our producer and man on the buttons who uh, pulls the show together and gets it up as early as possible every week. Thank you to you as well. And thank you to you, our listeners. Uh, we are always grateful that you join us and uh, tell your friends. Make sure you subscribe. Uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook and join us next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.